Welcome to another of the Cood Street podcasts, which Jonathan Strawn and I have been doing since March at this point, and it's going on half a year. And today I am uh, delighted to be able to talk to a multiple award-nominated distinguished novelist and sort of novelist, historian, nonfiction, fiction experimenter, Paul Park. Uh, and it occurred to me as soon as I was doing the introduction, Paul, that I don't really know how to describe something like all those vanished engines, because it's not all—it's not, not all fiction, is it? No, it's not. It's not all fiction. It's—it's it's a mixture of true stories and made-up stories. But my my task that I, the, as I characterized it in my mind, was that I wanted people to think that the true stories were made up and the made-up stories were true. So whenever I was writing mm-hmm. something that was actually part of family lore or something that I'd actually. Um, uh, experienced, I tried to write it in a way that people usually use to indicate uh, things that aren't so. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas the things that are quite clearly untrue, I tried to represent with a kind of a lucid, you know, uh, realism that would make them sort of stand out. Um, but yeah, in a way, it's it's a book that to to understand that part of it, you have to be <laughs> a very part of a very small circle of people who, <laughs> who know things about me and know things about my family um, and is, are able to sort of sort out what's true and what's not true. It's it, it's a kind of, there, there's, there's a game aspect to it, which is the kind of game I love. And as I mentioned to you before we started recording, other writers that I also admire, like Nina Allen, have done that. There was a Graham Joyce novel in which he did almost the same things, some very autobiographical elements that were presented as fantastical. And at, at the end, you realize, no, the fantastic stuff was what was real. Yeah. And, uh, I think that was, I think it was in the facts of life. Yes, I think it was. It uh, but anyway, we should be talking about uh, what I talk about everybody with on these short things, which is, can you get any reading done during this really bizarre period? Well, I have been doing some reading. A part of it is for, in preparation for this, uh, for a book I'm writing. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but I've been reading, uh, so I've been reading, for example, the book of Mormon, which I had never read before, uh, in, in preparation for this uh, novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now I'm reading, um, a book by the English writer, Robert Harris about the Dreyfus affair, um, uh, uh, an officer and a spy. And it's, it's really very comforting at this particular moment, just because it was such a um, complicated and 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 florid and unreal and uh, and important uh, sequence of events uh, that that just went on and on, and each week or month or year would bring just a, a cascade of, of 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 bizarre developments that were. You know, it seemed as if they were had come out of some novel rather than out of actual people choosing mm-hmm. actual things. And I find it very comforting at this moment because it's it, it it's this this moment also seems like that. the The problem with a writer writing now is that there's nothing they could do to suggest the kind of density of intense plot twists, for example, just of this last week since... Uh, I was going to say, do we do we need our own Emil Zola at this point? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, that, so that's been really fun. It's, and also, it's a historical novel, and it's told from the point of view of a, 
historical character in you know one of the important investigators inside the uh, uh, the court case, and wow. so that's a, that's an interesting thing for me to see how um, how Harris tries to do that. Uh, Is this the same Robert Harris that wrote Fatherland? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. He's written a lot of different kinds of things, um, including some speculative fiction, as he said. I was going to say, he kind of uh, came into our territory with at least that one novel, which I thought was very good. That was even, I think that was turned into a TV series or maybe a movie. Yeah, I didn't see that. But anyway, what else have you been up to? Let me see. Well, again, and this was partly in um, preparation for writing this book. So I'm about a third of the way into this book, but it's... um, you know, it's a cold planet, and uh, it's it, it's uh, I'm I'm sort of playing around with a society that doesn't recognize or isn't interested in uh, gender as a social construct. Um, hmm. I mean, it, uh, uh, sexes exist, but ideas about uh, distinctions between sexes and even as something that anybody would ever notice is entirely um, in the context of actual sex rather than uh, social roles or anything like that. Um, So it's interesting to write a novel where the narrator is making no distinction, like, for example, uses um, uh, gender neutral pronouns throughout. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's fun, especially when you're sort of putting together a love story. I'm, I'm I'm curious as to how you uh, what decision you made about the gender neutral pronouns because this has been getting discussion for years and years. I mean, Le Guin decided to use I guess male pronouns throughout the Left Hand of Darkness, and somebody else decided to use all female pronouns. A lot of people are going to they and them. It seems to me the idea of making up odd pronouns like V or whatever, seems to not be as popular as it was a few years ago. Yes. Well, th- this was all to say that having having come up with this idea, cold planet, um, uh, indeterminate gender, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I looked again at Left Hand of Darkness, which I hadn't read since I was a teenager. Um, and I was very struck by the effect of using only male pronouns. Um, because it really gives a kind of male cast the whole thing, so that the moments when uh, that uh, that goes away, there are moments in the text where people all of a sudden you, you but you're forced to remember that oh yes, they're not male. Right. We think about it, but there's just something about the uh, the, the the choice in language that casts our mind that way. Um, and I, I wanted to avoid that. So I'm, right. using, I'm using they and them with the, the hope that you just get used to it. Um, and also, you have to be very, very inventive just to make it so that, um, so that meaning becomes clear. Um, so you have to be careful about sentence structure and things like that. You have to be very careful about sentence structure. I also bring in the second person a lot. And uh-huh. it's actually, I find in this society, once you have a society that's gotten, re- it's entirely sort of they, them, um, they're going to, they're going to, they're not going to be first person singular people either. So it's going to be we, us too. Um, uh-huh. So that's fun. To, that becomes fun to play with, uh, especially since it, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a tradition. It, there's a certain Dostoevsky novels where 
you have a feeling that the narrating voice is this kind of plural voice that represents uh, the consensus in the town or something like that, rather than an individual person. Like a chorus. Yeah, like a chorus. And, and, and that's kind of what I'm using, too, in my, um, uh, for my narrator, who is able, though as a character in the drama, is sort of liberated from only being in one place or another because using a, a first-person plural allows a kind of a plural um, conception and description of what's going on. So it's fun to play with. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm looking at it and thinking. Um, uh, I hope people put up with this. The <laughs> the the idea of you know a gender neutral society. Um, you have to make it so it doesn't feel as if you're just uh, hiding crucial information out of out of cussedness as some kind of a joke. Um, but because this is actually the way people think, they don't, you know, the, uh, the gender somebody is, 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 is an insignificant de- de- detail. And there's, it's not, there's not something that you would ever even bring up except under very specific circumstances. Well, I think some people will be excited that you're sort of sounds like you're returning to science fiction at a scale that we haven't seen since what the Starbridge yeah. Yes. You know. Yeah. It's another. It's another planet, and um, uh-huh. it's a whole ecosystem, and it's uh, it's 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 fun to think about. And and you know, one of my heroes is this kind of um, Mormon LDS mystic uh, who 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 is he, he imagines that that this um, that this new world. Uh, he imagines that there was a mistake made in um, LDS theology to suggest that um, uh, that these stories from uh, uh, written down in the Book of Mormon actually took place in North America, uh, because when you when you scrounge around and look at the archaeological record, there, there's no trace of it. Yeah. But for this person. Um, uh, that that trip is actually this much larger trip to into the stars, and that Joseph Smith's um, book was more a prophecy than a history, and uh-huh. he was foretelling things that are happening in the stars. in uh, In the Book of Mormon, in the be- beginning of the Book of Mormon, there's a, a, a wonderful world word that Joseph Smith uses, uh, "ariantum," which describes the or describes the, the the passage to the new world and it's really unclear what it might mean because it's not exactly the ocean or anything like that so I, I I took it to mean sort of interstellar space and this new world and the and, and this new world that's uh, so so he's going around looking for for remnants of of, of uh, lost civilizations in this new world and I don't know it's fun to play with you sound. You seem to be enjoying it. That's, I, uh... am, I am. I am. I, <laughs> it's you know the Big Book of Mormon itself is both fascinating, but also you know uh, Mark Twain described it as chloroform in print, uh, <laughs> uh, and there's an element to that too. Partly because the, the writer, I think, was trying to reproduce a certain you know, King James biblical style. But right. There was a, uh, I, I had the sense, I had mixed feelings I, about uh, Orson Scott Card essentially rewriting the Book of Mormon as a series of science fiction novels and thinking it 
actually works pretty well as science fiction without anybody's interference. Well, exactly. I mean, there's there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of extraterrestrial stuff. There's a sense that you know the throne of God is in a specific uh, stellar location, and that there's uh, movement back and forth, and spirits who go from one place to another. All that is in the text. You don't have to fool with that. Um, the, other, the other question that uh, always comes up, and if, if you don't have anything in mind, don't bother. But and that is, if people have things that they return to as comfort reading during stressful times or during times of being locked down, do you have anything in those along those lines? Well, I am reading um, Emily Wilson's Odyssey, uh, and th- those were texts that were really very meaningful. Uh, well. <laughs> uh-huh. Speaking only for myself here, but certainly when I was a child, they were they were magical to me. Um, uh, I'm really liking this translation, although I'm not so I'm not so versed in the translations that I read so long ago, the Robert Fitzgerald, and then later my yeah. my mother, who was a, a classical scholar, was a big Richmond Lattimore fan. Um, but the character of Odysseus in this book is very different from the way I remember him when I was a child. And I, I can't really tell that whether that's just from the translation or it's because now I'm an adult and I'm reading it a new way. But, but the gleeful nature of the lies and the pointlessness of the lies he tells. Um, and, you know, she introduces him often as father of lies or the, the biggest liar yeah. in the world. Um, it, it gives me this sneaking suspicion, and I wonder if anybody else has has considered this. That it, you know, it starts out um, the parts about her, you know, him. You know, he's in the island of Calypso, and then he right. he's washed up on uh, you know Nausicaa's island and talks to her father there, um, and 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 that's where he tells the whole story of the Cyclops and the Sirens and Circe and going back to the underworld and all this. And how he lost all his men, he lost his fleet first and then his ship and everybody, and he's the last remaining one. And uh, uh, But it's introduced by saying, you know, Ulysses, the father, or Odysseus, the father of lies, started to speak. And I wonder, started thinking, well, this all sounds like bullshit. This, it sounds it, like a tall tale. It sounds like a tall tale. <laughs> Just him trying to, to explain why it is that he's not to blame for this terrible catastrophe <laughs> that's involved the deaths of these dozens and dozens of people. Um, it, it's, it's a really interesting for me, psychological way of reading it. All of a sudden, I just don't trust him at all as veracity. Nice. Suddenly, suddenly Ulysses is no longer a reliable narrator, which yeah. actually makes a lot of sense the minute you mention that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and the, and the, this tradition of you know telling stories to your host in in return for you know for lodging, right? I think yeah, you would definitely embellish it, and especially since in the text itself he's obviously lying about things that you know about. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can verify that he's lying in 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 many or even most cases, and then now all of a sudden we're supposed to believe it when he says that. You know, there's a race of people with only one eye in the middle of their forehead. Well, we're running a little bit over time, but I wanted to uh, get to the question of whether there's anything that uh, we can look forward to. I know this novel sounds terrific, but between now and then, I know you had one of those little conversation pieces things 
uh, from from Terry Bisson just last year, I think. Uh, they had a couple of news stories in it, which I thought were fascinating because there's a lot of sort of parody of literary theory in it, <laughs> which yeah. I could see. I love that series of books, and I was really glad to do one. The yeah. um, the uh, what's it called? The outspoken author series. Yeah. So it was a great it's a great privilege, and also nice to put in um, uh, uh, put in some extra books there. I I, I wrote a um, a novella, and I have a few other uncollected stories that um, uh, uh, uh uh, P P S books in England is 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 thinking of bringing out as a as as a great short collection. Um, although I don't know, it's what with the pandemic, that's all been sort of slowed down. But that's a, everything slowed down. All the books that were supposed to be out this summer are out next spring now. It seems so. That's or a novella maybe. called The Centaur. That um, uh, uh, sort of a it's actually a kind of a post apocalyptic plague novella, but. Uh, so, so we'll see. Um, then this 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 spring, I was writing um, uh, like this this ongoing s- story, uh, uh, a few hundred words a day on Facebook. Um, that just I, I, I liked the idea of trying to write something that I had no idea where it was going. Oh, interesting. So I put so I I, I put about fourteen episodes of that out. Um, as I look over, like it clearly needs a arc that it didn't have as I was writing it because I w- literally didn't really give it any thought from the minute I stopped writing. Are, are you getting feedback from readers as you post episodes? Well, I, yes, I, it's over now, but I did, and that was that was really fun. Um, right. What was the title of that piece? Uh, I, I'm not sure it had a title. <laughs> okay. If if you're my Facebook friend, you can sort of. You, I'm sure you can find it. I'll go the- take a look at it. Well, again, we're almost at 20 minutes, so I think we should uh, stop it. This has been fascinating, and I've, I've got all kinds of questions now. But again, this has been um, the Good Street Podcast. This is Gary Wolf talking to Paul Park, and thank you so much, Paul. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Gary.